Welcome to episode two of Cop and Daughter. I'm Cop. And I'm Daughter. So this episode, we are talking about kind of our um, first recollections of things that happened uh, in the criminal world that maybe affected us or caused us to kind of take notice. Uh, I think in all of this, as, as you and I have talked in terms of I'm a cop, you're a cop's daughter, uh, memories that we have, and then true crimes is there's an element of it it impacts us. It mm-hmm. has an effect on us and, and how we view the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that brought us to doing this is is kind of talking about our experiences and things that, that uh, we can recall um, when we were younger, uh, maybe influencing us or uh, being one of those moments where our world changed a little bit uh, because of something that somebody else did. Um, I would say, given the nature of the podcast, it's Mm -hmm. probably something that was criminal or negative or uh, maybe shattered your kind of security Mm -hmm. and the bubble that you lived in, in terms of what the world was really like. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have anything that maybe stands out to you that you recall happening that affected how you viewed the world and, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, um, in 2007, there was a case of a girl who was abducted and murdered, um, in our local town, Kelsey Smith. Um, and I remember, you know, you'd be driving down the highway and you'd see bumper sticker after bumper sticker of trying to bring awareness to finding her or, um, just the, the case itself. And, um, I remember, you know, it's probably partly the age that I was at too, because I was close to the time that I would have started doing things, you know, without parents having to take you there or whatever is you just became so much more aware of your surroundings and you didn't go anywhere alone and you didn't stay on your phone when you were walking around, you know, like be aware. And, um, I think even to this day, I still am like my sentence or senses are heightened when you go out. Um, and that's like really the first case that I think stuck with me of, you know, there's bad things that happen in this world and, yeah, and so what was what was Kelsey doing? She was at um, a Target across from a local mall. Had you been to that Target before? I had been, yep, yeah. the Target so and even... the mall, yep. And so she had been in the Target and I believe was walking to her car um, and was kidnapped when she got to her car. And the guy had been at the mall and walked over from the mall and... Um, I don't know if she just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't think there was anything that he necessarily targeted her, but right. Just being a female that was alone. Yeah. And so she was missing for a while. Mm-hmm. And then and they later found her body in like a wooded yeah. area. And so she had been, I believe there was like sexual abuse and then she had been murdered. Yeah. And I think that was kind of one of the first cases where they tried to use cell phones to pinpoint, w- uh-huh. to ping a location. Yeah. And I think things changed after that in terms of cooperation between 
uh, cell phone providers and the police department because there's certainly an expectation of privacy and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, they didn't want to release that. um, Yeah. Because they're, I don't even, do you know how old she was um, when that happened? Um, I don't. I mean, she was, she was young. Yeah. A teenager, I think maybe early twenties, but you know, there, there is that element of, of privacy. And so, um, there were laws that were changed as a result of that in terms of exigency and police needing to be able to, to ping, Mm -hmm. um, cell phones. And then I think it even kind of got abused a little bit for a while where (laughs) anybody that was missing, they were reaching out and trying to get them to, and so there kind of became requirements for, Mm -hmm being able to do that. So yeah, she was 18 18. when she died. Yeah. So again, being 18, she would have been an adult. Mm -hmm. And again, sometimes people don't want to be found. Sometimes people, and that clearly wasn't the case because I don't know if you recall this, but one of the things that they were showing on the news was, uh, the, so when you walk into a target store, they have those cameras where you can Uh actually see yourself on the screen. Yeah. And so they were showing that. Yeah. And, um, that was kind of the last, what was last seen of her. And then, you know, the totality of everything with her car still being there and Mm -hmm. at the target parking lot and her missing. So, yeah, I believe she was at target buying a present for her boyfriend too. So that would have been probably a clue that she wasn't, had no intention of disappearing the way that she did. Yeah. Yeah. So. So that was, that was it for me of. You know, just realizing that, you know, it's not always safe out there. Yeah. Um, so my my first one was um, John Wayne Gacy in mm-hmm. Chicago. And, you know, you and I have talked about this. Your memory cannot always be 100% yeah. in terms of what actually happened. And sometimes you can create a story for yourself, but I do remember being in Chicago in the holiday in Chicago around the like Christmas holiday, uh, with news reports about, Mm -hmm. um, what happened there. And, um, I think at that point, again, my, my, my memory gets fuzzy, but, um, my recollection is, is that they were finding the bodies, on his property. Mm-hmm. And I can even remember like the parent, like we weren't watching the news as right. kids, right. but clearly the parents were talking about something mm-hmm. and you could just tell that there was kind of a gravity, mm-hmm. uh, to the situation. And, and even then for me, um, there wasn't that necessarily like a, a, a personal application in terms of what had happened because, um, I was younger, um, you know, even the, the, what he was doing and why he was bringing those people, the boys to his house and that thing just didn't even register to me. So, um, I don't recall thinking much about it after leaving Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, and even in that, I think there was kind of a piece of, well, those things happen in Chicago. They don't happen other places, but that was kind of that first thing for me of, um, observing something in the news, in the world that was like, Oh my gosh, that's like like I didn't think those things happened. Right. Right. So that was that was that was the first one for me. Um did you have any others that you wanted to I don't. Okay. That's the one that sticks out the most to the, me. The one that stands out to me. Yeah. So um the second one 
uh, for me, and it's someone that we're going to kind of springboard into mm-hmm. uh, talking about true crime and things that happen, uh, occurred in the summer of 1989. And um, I was uh, 18 myself in 89 and had just graduated from high school. And we had three women uh, disappear from the community where we lived. And that was Joan Butler, Teresa Brown, and Christine Roosh. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that immediately, like, hit for me was, one, they were from where we lived, and they disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I will add, they are still missing. Um, but, But I went to the same high school as one of the victims and she was four years older than me. I don't remember her or don't claim to have that recollection, but, um, that summer of 89. And I mean, it was, it was a relatively short period of time, but it was kind of the same sort of deal where there were flyers, Mm -hmm. um, looking for these, these women and that the, the disappearance of the three of them was, was connected, uh, how young they were. And again, it just was like, I didn't think this stuff happened uh, right. where we lived, and and now it had happened, and um, they quickly uh, developed a suspect, mm-hmm. and that suspect was was Richard Grissom Jr., and he is now incarcerated uh, here in Kansas, and uh, serving, I believe, four life sentences. Um, so, do you have kind of? when you looked into this, what kind of transpired, uh, with the three of them and want to talk about that at all? Yeah. So it, um, didn't necessarily give like the readings that I read through didn't totally give specifics about like where they were when they went missing. Um, but Richard Grissom was a house painter and a maintenance worker and so um, Teresa Brown and Christine Roosh were actually roommates, and he had been working in their apartment complex um, sh- shortly before they had gone missing. And so um, I believe Joan Butler was the first um, victim, and his um, they had actually found Joan's car in this complex that um, Christine Roosh and Teresa Brown were located at, and they, um, in the car, f- connected it to um, Grissom. And so after making that connection, um, and Teresa and Christine went missing, they later found their cars and Grissom's bank cards, or, I'm sorry, in I believe Grissom's car, they found Teresa and Christine's bank cards and the keys to their apartment. Um, And so, but they still have not been able to locate any of those three women. Yeah, so this was one of those situations where, like you said, he he was consistently, well, yeah, consistently being associated with their vehicles. Mm -hmm. And kind of being um, his belongings, their belongings, uh, you know, notably the fact that he had keys to their apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was developed as a suspect and he was somebody 
that they were looking for. And he was actually seen uh, in Lawrence, Kansas mm-hmm. with, um, do you remember whose vehicle it was? I believe that was Butler's car. Okay. So he yep. was seen with her vehicle and the officer approaches him and basically is like, hey, like. Got some questions for you. Got some questions for you. Um, and, you know, initially he, he was, he was, um, you know, I, I, I've never heard whether he was diagnosed, but had some sociopathic, mm-hmm. quick on his feet, easy mm-hmm. to lie, uh, very believable, very charming. Mm-hmm. And so the officer makes contact with him and he kind of has a, a quick story as to why he's in the possession with the car and they're in an apartment complex. And so they go inside to, um, kind of sort it out. I think the person inside can give him an alibi. And so when he and the officer go into the apartment complex, he jumps into an apartment, jumps out a window, and then he flees uh, to Texas Mm -hmm. and um, reaches out to a girlfriend down in Texas. Lured like another female to meet him at the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. And that's where he was when the cops located him and arrested him. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, he was brought to back to uh, Johnson County, Kansas, um, where he was prosecuted and eventually convicted of the murder of these three women. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, he's serving uh, four life sentences for this. So there's, there's the one aspect of he seems very disorganized, kind of sloppy in the mm-hmm. fact that um, he's leaving um, basically evidence behind right. Um, but they never find these three girls. And so, um, you know, for me, that is kind of like the second piece in all of this is that, you know, these three women went missing and we are now, um, I think 33 years later. Is that how long it's been? 33 years since they went missing. So technically they're still missing Mm -hmm. and he was charged with their murders, uh, with no bodies, which that doesn't happen. Right. Very often. So how did they, if you don't have a body for evidence, how can someone get charged for murders? So um, one of the things is, is his fingerprints were inside Butler's car, his wallet, his checkbook, and his uh, driver's license were Mm -hmm. all found uh, in Butler's car. And so clearly he had contact with her. Right. Um, was it, it was a, uh, a Chevy Corsica that belonged to Roosh that I think he had was driving when, um, he was contacted, um, in Lawrence. Uh-huh. And so, um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so again, it's it's the totality of of the evidence um, that uh, here are three women that short of the two being roommates they didn't have a relationship with the third mm-hmm. and they are finding his belongings in their vehicles they're finding uh, their uh, personal belongings uh, in places where you would not normally um, the state of uh, I think it was the first, it was, so, you know, Joan Butler 
you know, when they went and looked at her apartment, it was pretty clear. Yeah, it had mentioned that, that she was caught by surprise. Like, there was a half-finished cigarette. Um, I think there was, like, a piece of toast left on the counter. Mm-hmm. So it was evident that when she left her apartment, she wasn't intending to leave or had been caught off guard, um, just kind of by the disarray that it had been been left in. And then I, one of the things that I noticed was um, her, she went missing... I think like early June, um, she was last seen June 18th and then her car was spotted at her complex on June 25th and someone had contacted the authorities when they had noticed the car again, but when the authorities arrive, someone had seen a man, um, shut the trunk and flee the scene with the car. And so later they located the car and it was in Butler's or not Butler's Grissom's possession. So, yeah. So that, so that's back to your question. That that would be how he um, was eventually the circum- circumstantial evidence. Yeah. yeah, and then it's just it's the totality of all those things. And then uh, another piece in all this, which I don't even know. I mean, generally you cannot bring up somebody's criminal history mm-hmm. uh, when they're on trial for another crime. Mm. And so I don't believe this played into the prosecution, right. but. What did he do as a juvenile? Um, as a juvenile, he was 16, and he had beaten and stabbed his elderly neighbor Yeah. Um, to the point where she had also passed away. So, yeah, so he was um, charged with that as a juvenile. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you happen to have her name handy? I do not. I actually couldn't locate a name for that. Okay. I had her name. Because <laughs> oh. that's, that's something that I, you know, honestly, I think is important to... Uh, no, I don't have hers. I have the person from Wichita. That, that was he, the Terry Manis. Manis. Yeah. Yeah. So Terry Manis was uh, a victim uh, in Wichita that he had been known to have gone on a date with like the week prior. Mm-hmm. And she was found dead in her... Uh, home in Wichita. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, Wichita probably had enough to charge him Mm -hmm. for that, but they never did. And do you you recall why that was? Did you read that at all? I I didn't. So basically they were like kind of keeping it as a, like a, an ace in the hole kind of a thing Uh where if the trial in Kansas city where they didn't physically have bodies, uh, they had a body of this 20, I think she was 25 maybe at the time, 25 year old woman in Wichita. And so they were going to kind of see how the Kansas city trial, the Johnson County trial played out. And then if he was acquitted or didn't get a murder conviction on those, mm-hmm. then they were going to bring him back to Sedgwick County, back to Wichita and have him tried there for her murder. But it, you know, it's, um, you want justice for everybody. Right. Uh, but the reality is, is that one, the criminal justice system can go slowly mm-hmm. and two, it can be expensive. Yeah. And so, uh, I think the people in Wichita that were going to try him for that murder, when he got sentenced to the four life sentences here, that they didn't feel like it was necessary to retry mm-hmm. him again for that. So that was yeah. that. So we talk about specifically these three, um, missing women, uh, 
but the reality is, is that he most, while he definitely was convicted for this fourth one, mm-hmm. and while he was never tried and convicted, it's at least five uh, that he right. probably... Yeah. Um, I did find the name for the his elderly neighbor. It was Hazel Meeker. Yeah. Um, and that was when he was 16. That was when he was 16. So, you know, that's, that's one of the things I think um, for us as we talk about this in the true crime um, aspect of things is that... Um, there are very real victims. There mm-hmm. are people whose lives were taken and we don't take that lightly. And we are by no means up holding people uh, that commit these kind of crimes. Right. And the reality is, is these three women to bring closure to their family, we hope that they're found. Right. Um, there are a lot of different theories um, as to where their bodies might be. Mm-hmm. Um, one was there's a Clinton Dam in Douglas County, Kansas, outside of the city of Lawrence, mm-hmm. uh, where his one of the stolen vehicles that he was driving, a neighbor thought was suspicious and jotted down uh, the driver's license. Uh-huh. And so they kind of searched um, around the dam mm-hmm. uh, looking for her. And then the Johnson County prosecutor uh, who got him convicted has his own theory. Do you, did you catch that at I all? Didn't. So he, he actually thinks they're in a, his theory is, is that the bodies could be in a landfill somewhere oh. and that, um, you know, you put a, you put a body in a landfill and then within hours, if not days, there's stuff covered, yeah. covered and you would not find them in there. And so to me, that is one of the things that I think is interesting about this case is he was so sloppy with mm-hmm. the clues and, and leaving evidence behind. And yet we're 33 years later and their bodies haven't been found. Been found. Yeah. And I don't believe that even as charming and as smart and all that is, as he possibly could have been, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of quote unquote luck on his part. Um, yeah. I find it interesting that he hasn't even talked about it. In 33 years, he has given it nobody anything to go off of. Something, one of the things that I read from an article I found is the only thing that he said to give them any sort of like clue would, um, the quote was, you'll dig them up. Mm -hmm. But other than that, he hasn't actually confessed anything and has given no, no further, um, say into what had happened or where they would be found. Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy because that's not, I mean, as, as, as we, as you get into to true crime stuff, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that you tend to see about these people is that when they are caught, there's kind of this confession mm-hmm. and even maybe not prior to prosecution, but once they've been incarcerated, right. they've been in prison a little bit, they're willing to talk about, Mm-hmm. Um, what it is that they did, and even give details of that. Right. So, yeah, he has not not budged. Um, so the other thing about their disappearance was, um, was there any indication that they were maybe with him and alive for any period of time from the time that they went missing to the time that he was arrested? I don't believe so. What was he doing with their ATMs? Did you catch oh, that? I didn't catch that. Uh-uh. So he had, particularly Christina, uh, was 
withdrawing money from her ATM. And I don't know what it is today, to be honest with you, but the maximum that you could withdraw was $300. Uh And there was actually kind of a, like went to different locations, uh, different times a day and withdrew $300, $300, $300. And, um, was removing money, um, from their bank accounts. So, and she's, she's, she's even seen, I think on one of the ATM cameras and he's not present in the camera. I do remember reading that. Yep. And, uh, I think she had some particularly large uh-huh. sunglasses and you could maybe see a bruise yes, on yep, her head. Yes, yeah, that is right. Yeah, she had a bruise and the sunglasses on the ATM video camera. Oh, yeah, I have that. <laughs> June 26th. So any any other thoughts, any other comments that you have about this particular situation? Uh, I think to me it's just crazy that it's been... 30 some years and they still have not been located and he still has not given any sort of information as to what happened. Yeah. Still hasn't even admitted that he was the one that did it. Yeah. Um, so in the first episode I talked about different categories Uh of people. Yes. What category do you think you would put him into? You know, I think there's a mix of, given his past with the crime that he had at 16, there's probably some of that, he, just his life growing up kind of laid way for that to happen. Um, But I also just, this seems pretty just evil to me. Yeah, I, I would say given the fact that it's, we're 33 years into this, mm-hmm. he knows what his sentence is, there's no benefit to him, and yet he does not speak about it. Yeah. And to me, that is that is an indicator of evil. Because the other thing that I would say is that when people choose to talk about the crime, mm-hmm. there's an element of clearing their conscience. Yeah. Now, how you ever clear your conscience of killing another human being, I don't know. Right. But to keep that bottled up and to never talk about that, mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I'm with you in that I think here is somebody that we are talking about that is truly evil. Yeah. Now, did he have things growing up and in his background that probably um, influenced him right. choosing those things? Yeah, I yeah. think that's probably true. Um, and do I think he's a sociopath or a psychopath? I think. Yeah, I I would probably lean closer more to a sociopath than a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. There's probably a thin line there, but uh, and those that have more expertise than I do would probably disagree with right. a comment yeah. like that. But yeah, this is somebody that like again. I I think coming across a path of true evil is few and far between, and this is one of those places for me that. Hmm. Yeah. to keep that secret for 33 years. Um, So kind of on a tangent here, uh, we've also talked about the death penalty in our conversations. That was something I had. Okay. Well then I'll, 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 well, I just, one of the um, like investigators or detectives on the case uh, was quoted. He won't say anything unless there's something to be gained by him. And so with that, kind of we'd had this conversation recently of like, do you think if there was a death penalty and they could say, 
you tell us where these bodies were or are, you don't get the death penalty. If you don't, mm-hmm. you're going to get, like, do you think something like that would influence his, how long he's been silent in a situation like this? So, first of all, I don't, I, it would be purely sec- speculation right. on my part right. on something like that. So, I am not a fan of death, mm-hmm. the death penalty. And I think. Yes. I would fall in that same. Okay, so yeah. neither one of us are are, are particularly for for yeah. the death penalty. However, and this is where I think anytime we're dealing with any kind of <laughs> topic that deals with human behavior and mm-hmm. just the world that we live in, nothing is is ever so black and white. Right. And so one of the things I think uh, in this particular case. Uh, Kansas did not have the death penalty at that time. Mm-hmm. It did not exist in Kansas. And I think this is a situation where had, and, and we don't even know that this would have happened. So again, this is right. even speculation, but had he been convicted of their three murders and he had been given the death penalty, mm-hmm. I do believe that there was potential for saying you will get your four life sentences versus the death penalty. Yeah. If you tell us where those bodies are. Yeah. And so, um, you know, is that, should that be enough for me to be okay with the death penalty? I don't know. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that seems kind of, again, what's the difference? He's going to die in prison versus he gets the death penalty. But I do think that, um, there is a situation. It lends itself to being something where, um, they might know where these women are mm-hmm. um, had he had that hanging over their head because we know that he's not going to give that to bring closure. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. There's no sense of wrongdoing on his part. But if he is a sociopath and is looking out for his best interest, then mm-hmm. he may have said something. Yeah. So, Yeah. I just can't imagine the families of the girls and not yeah. having any closure that, you know, mm-hmm. they know that their family members are missing and most likely dead, but yeah. there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. And that's, you know, I put myself in that same situation of, you know, you and your sister basically fall in the age range of these mm-hmm. women and... I just, I can't imagine you're gone one day mm-hmm. and then even if they do find out who does it and that person goes to jail for doing it, if I don't know where you are. Right. And so here's the other thing. We don't know what happened to them. Right. From the time of being abducted to the time of their death. Yeah. Like we don't know how they died. Mm-hmm. We don't, like we don't know. Uh, and I don't want to get morbid. I don't want to get right. into that. Right. But, but we can probably assume it was somewhat gruesome. It yeah. was somewhat, you know, yeah. it, it just unimaginable. And so, you know, as a dad in that situation, that's that's kind of the second piece for me. I, I can't even imagine, you know, him rotting in jail being alive isn't going to bring much yeah. solace to me in terms of, I mean, it, it, it. I know it's not. He's not going to do it again. Right. So, but yeah. So that's just that's just crazy. So um, he is um, incarcerated here in Kansas. 
he does get moved with some degree of frequency. Um, I don't, I I think, so Paul Morrison was the, the Johnson County district attorney that prosecuted him. And he made a comment in one of the stories I think has, that was like at least 10 years old, if not 20 years old, uh, made a comment about him being moved every nine months. And because he is, um, kind of a savvy sociopath, Mm -hmm. um, but the frequency of being moved, um, has um, lessened. And one of the things, so he, he's been in trouble for fighting since he's been in prison, which I think anybody that's in prison is going to get in trouble for that. Yeah. He had dangerous contraband. <laughs> so at some point he had, I'm guessing a weapon, but yeah. it could have been uh, disobeying orders, uh, battery, which in the state of Kansas, battery is actually physically assaulting another person, mm-hmm. uh, less dangerous contraband, so less dangerous contraband, in my mind, could be like a cell phone. Uh, it could even be drugs or alcohol. Okay. Somebody's not going to So um, two other previous um, dangerous contraband. Um, and then uh, this one I find is interesting. In 2015, he had what is called undue familiarity. Do you have any idea what that is? I have no clue. <laughs> so undue familiarity is somebody that has made friends with a jailer and oh. has clearly created some sort uh-huh. of uh, relationship. Um, I don't know the facts behind that. I have no idea what it's what it pertains to, uh, but it could be even a dating relationship, which I wouldn't put past him. Yeah. Like I could see him. Interesting trying to do something like that. So, so the moving was like a consequence of those things. Is that what you were saying? So or? It, 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 so there's there, I, I believe there's two different things that could be going on with his movement. One, it could be as a consequence of, of these types of things mm-hmm. Two, um, again, if he's smart, he's articulate, he's charming. Yeah. It's the prevent, they're trying to prevent him from escaping. I, I, oh. I believe he is, he would be identified as an escape risk, uh, giving his propensity for flight, uh-huh. giving his ability to, uh, charm people and things like that. So that's unsettling. It is unsettling. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, I, I just want to acknowledge that there are three, uh, missing women, um, Obviously, anybody can go on the website and find out about them and Mm -hmm. and how to um, contribute to if that's something that, that, you know, because I I think sometimes when people hear this stuff, they kind of want to go, what can I do? Right, right. And so um, you can find out different ways um, to to help with missing persons. I think there's some 14,000 missing persons in the United States. Um, most of them not being tied to some sort of criminal mm-hmm. um, conclusion where a, a suspect is put in jail behind that. Right. So um, did you have anything else that you wanted to touch on before we conclude think, our time? I think we hit it all. We hit it all. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so appreciate you uh, tuning in and listening to us. Um we are going to continue to uh, dive in from one week to the next into different uh, criminal activity that we mm-hmm. find interesting that has impacted us, um, that has had uh, an influence on us. So thanks. 
thanks so much for your time. Uh, and again, I'm Cop. And I'm Daughter. Until next time, stay safe. Public to help find him, we should note for you, you may find his footage disturbing.